Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, a venture partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, one of the leading gaming-focused VC firms, and content acquisition lead at Andreessen-backed Carry First, the leading African mobile games publisher. Today, I'm joined by Uri Marchand, CEO and co-founder at Overwolf. Overwolf is one of the companies that's leading the charge to grow the UGC industry in gaming today. What's going on, Uri? Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for joining me. So, you know, I think most of my listeners are probably familiar with Overwolf and you, but for those mm -hmm. who are not, do you mind just walking through sort of your background and the path that you took to get to where you are today? Sure. I started playing games at a very young age, played pretty much everything under the sun. I think my big first addiction was Dune 2 back in the RTS days, which then evolved to other games like StarCraft, StarCraft 3, StarCraft 2, etc. By the way, really looking forward to Stormgate, so shout out for that game, which we're expecting to see coming up soon. So after playing games and spending a few years in the army, I started computer science. And as I was studying, I felt like it's going to be interesting building a company that would kind of answer pains that we've experienced as gamers. So to build features that we were missing, that I was missing myself, as well as the friends that I kind of co-founded the company with. And this is how things start for us. And also a bit of my personal background. Awesome. So actually Tim at Frost Giant was one of Frost our past Giant, guests. Correct. And he was a great guest. So everyone should listen to that episode if they haven't already. Seems but you, you know, I noticed a lot of the games that you named that you used to play, you know, had content creation in the early days. So yep. was this part of what motivated you? Yeah, I think so. One of the attractions I think in online games is that it's just always interesting. So even if you don't have new maps or new experiences, you play against new people. So the game itself is like interesting. It's kind of like chess or basketball. The court stays the same. But at the same time, games like Warcraft 3 obviously introduced mods. And that was really interesting and kind of triggered my imagination to what could be done and what could be created. And this is kind of how we started, right? We started our career being modders or creators ourselves. We eventually ended up pivoting to build a platform, but this is sort of how things originated for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Warcraft 3, I think, is actually probably the first game I played as well that had UGC. And yeah, obviously, it was so, so, so inspirational as far as the UGC industry and how it evolved. But yeah, mm -hmm. you know, pivoting over to Overwolf, what is actually the business model? You know, I know there's a number of different things that you guys do. So how do you define Overwolf? I mean, for me, what we're building is a new profession called that profession in-game creators. And in-game creators are people building third-party content around existing games, aka UGC, and making a living doing so. So what differentiates us, I think, compared to potentially either other platforms or how UGC was handled in the past is that we think about UGC not only as a means to have more gaming experiences or prolong the shelf life of the game, but also a way for the creator to make a living, by the way, and as a result for the game developer or publisher to make some money along the way. So this is sort of how we're thinking about that. And as such, we're a tools and services company, obviously, because we build tools that then are used by third-party creators, and we have a couple of creator categories. So one is app developers. So people playing on their PC, they want to enhance games that aren't really moddable. You can't really change the gameplay. Like for example, League of Legends. So you can build an app that enhances your gameplay. Mm -hmm. That's one category. The other category is mods. 
And inside mods, we have like an, a way to support integrated mods. So integrated mods would work, for example, in consoles. One of the recent games we've launched with is Ark Survival Ascended with support for PlayStation, Xbox, as well as PC. But the, the reason that there is mod support for PlayStation is that the whole discovery process is sort of integrated with a plugin into the game. So on modding, that's one way to mod a game. The other one is third party. So kind of like we would do add-ons for World of Warcraft or mods for Minecraft or some of the other games that we support. Third category is private server owners. And this is actually a really, really interesting category that mm -hmm. we got into through the acquisition Tebex around about two years ago. And for those who are not familiar with the private server space, obviously games have two strategies for multiplayer, either centralized or decentralized. So centralized would be games like League of Legends, where if I want to play with my friends, it's not a private server. You know, I would go on maybe solo queue, maybe duo, maybe, yeah. you know, whatever I want. But basically, Riot Games would manage the entire online experience, whereas for some games like Rust, for example, or Ark Survival Evolved, now Survival Ascended, you can actually have a private server and play with your friends and kind of, you know, control your gameplay and environment, customize your server and do a bunch of things. It's kind of like running a live service. And, you know, I was surprised with the scale, both of kind of the amount of people who want to run this, but most importantly, the amount of people who want to run this, not only as a hobby, but as a profession. So this is why it was so interesting for us. And, you know, potentially more categories coming up down the road, but these are the main three categories that we're focused on. I think if you look at the gaming industry, specifically in the sort of gaming VC space over the last several years, you know, there have been a number of different categories that have attracted a lot of attention, right? Blockchain over the last, you know, several years, not as much in recent times, was probably the hottest thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, yep. you know, there still are a lot of really interesting smart folks developing blockchain games, but it's a lot less hot than it was before, right? Right. You know, VR several years back was hot, you know, again, a little bit less so now. Esports as well, you know, I think part of it is due to sort of how these large companies have actually performed. You know, I think interest mm -hmm. has sort of shifted. UGC is actually one area that was hot and has remained hot. You know, I think one of the reasons why there was so much attention, you know, obviously is Roblox. You know, Roblox is just yep. a behemoth and has really, really transformed UGC. But mm -hmm. you guys have been in this sort of UGC space for over a decade, right? And yep. so obviously way before, you know, this was like one of the hottest things in gaming. So in the early days of Overwolf, did you imagine that this would become such a hot area within gaming? Or was this more just something that you were passionate about and you felt that there was a need uh, that needed to be filled? Wow, that, that's a really good question. So first off, I think, you know, UGC has existed for four decades, unlike, you know, VR or Web3 games. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that it has always been there and the fact that it has such credibility in creating new genres and the fact that people have been doing this and continuously doing this pretty much since gaming started, you know, for me, at least compared to these other verticals, is a proof that there's real substance here. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, people want to create people who want to use that content, consume that content and good stuff would kind of come from that. So this is, I think, just my perspective on UGC in general compared to these other kind of, you know, hot stuff mm -hmm. that would come to the market every once in a while. I think what got us into UGC is not because we thought, oh, this is an amazing financial opportunity mm -hmm. or, oh, this is going to be the hottest trend. We just thought, I think, that 
you know, I have this blog post from 2014 where I talk about how I think the industry needs to sort of shift its perspective on modders and stop looking at modders as hackers, but uh, trying to kind of work with them together to build high quality, legitimate content. And this is really what we wanted to fix. And I think this is what drove us to that. We didn't know back then. Obviously, we didn't have Roblox as an example. We definitely right. didn't have anything like UEFN or anything mm -hmm. like that. We just thought, well, there's an underserved community of creators. And if only there would be this company that would create the glue between the game studio and the creator themselves and solve as a service, all the services that need to be built, then it could be really interesting. I would love to be a part in solving this problem. So this is kind of how we thought about that. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned UEFN, you know, I think recently it's gotten a lot of attention and rightfully so, you know, I don't know if you just wanted to share some sort of high level thoughts on UEFN, how you think it's going to impact the gaming industry and how it impacts your space. I think UEFN is, is a great initiative from Epic Games, and it provides, I think, further validation that, you know, ecosystems can thrive on third-party creations. Obviously, we've seen this outside of games in how people consume content with the transition from linear to VOD to UGC, probably being, you know, the most consumed content in the world right now mm -hmm. on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, whatever. And so I think that, you know, A, it's a great validation. B, I think for a lot of other sort of Game studios, publishers out there, they're starting to think, well, if Fortnite kind of becomes this, you know, engine at the end of the day where mm -hmm. people can run live service businesses on top of, then how are we thinking about our game and what are we going to do and which possibilities? So I think it actually creates opportunities for us because people who in the past would have said, hey, you know what, this is not for us and let the UGC community kind of do whatever and we'll just build the next, you know, AAA franchise and release it and make a billion dollars and then move to the next or whatever. I think now companies are starting to look at this differently. And through the success of Roblox, through everything that UEFN is today and what it's going to be, I think it just creates more need in the market. And, you know, this is what I would say the impact on us is. One of the impacts of, you know, sort of the proliferation of UGC in different games has been the extension of their lives, right? So, you know, I think if you think about like sort of GTA 5 or even like The Sims, right? A lot of these games, like because of how much additional content can be created by creators, yep. their lifespans have expanded a ton. You know, mm -hmm. I think a lot of folks recently, and I've talked about this on past podcast episodes, have been yep. talking about how in today's gaming industry, it's become increasingly difficult for a number of reasons for new entrants to break through and right. sustain. Do you think that modding and UGC is another contributing factor that's going to make it more difficult for new entrants, you know, despite all of the, the benefits it's bringing to incumbents? I mean, it really depends how you look at it. I think in a way it would provide another opportunity for studios to succeed building game experiences. And I would give an example, you know, Ark, that's a great franchise. Ark Survival Ascended allows for studios to come and to sort of build a game within Ark and sell it. We're actually launching that this week. And so instead of a new studio needing to think about, hey, how am I going to do discovery? They can kind of attach themselves to an existing franchise. Mm -hmm build high quality content. And while they are kind of using ASA as an engine, they would still own the IP. They would still have the opportunity to make a living building the game and 
they would really build a game. I think, you know, in terms of flexibility, it provides even further flexibility compared to Roblox, obviously, but also UEFN. And so I think potentially modding has an opportunity to sort of change how people think about, hey, I want to build a studio and build a game. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's obviously one option. You're going to have a hard time, obviously, or a big challenge with discovery and go to market and all those things, unless you're pal world and you can just build <laughs> uh, the world over <laughs> over like Fortnite. Mm -hmm. um, but there aren't too many pal worlds. And, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, it's very difficult to say, oh, yeah, sure, we're going to be the next pal world. Right. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> if, you, if you want to have a more sort of sustainable go to market strategy, you might as well, you know, try that. But you're right. It kind of means that for the big franchises, you know, you mentioned GTA Five. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be an audience continuously playing this game, and as long as Five M continues to deliver, and now with Rockstar acquiring Five M, obviously yeah. they've not acquired it to put it on the side. Obviously, they're focused on you know leveling it up. And so, yeah, in that sense, it's going to be even more difficult to get your game for success, but also creates another opportunity for you. Yeah, I think you know, Power World is a good example in that the ability for you know i'll say relative new entrants right because it wasn't technically their first game though you know i think a lot of people probably think this is just like a developer that came out of nowhere and made this game you know they they do have actually experience in past games um, but I, I do think it's a good example of a game that can and has broken out to you know level of success we haven't seen in a while um, i'm just curious to get your general thoughts on pal world though i don't know if you've played i actually personally haven't played but you know i've watched a lot of gameplay of it but just curious to hear what you think about it i watched too i didn't play uh, it's on my to-do list yeah me too uh, I, I feel like i have a professional duty to spend a few <laughs> hours uh, figuring out this game mm -hmm. yeah i'm not really familiar with the studio but i, I did sort of read the case study obviously they, yeah. they know what they're doing they were able to create a high quality experience obviously maybe some question marks around you know ip and how they think about Pokemon and all those sure. things and, mm -hmm. and how that plays. But you know what? We'll have to see. I mean, based on the recent information I've read, it sounds like they're off the hook with any sort of IP infringement concerns. Obviously, great execution and great result. You know, one of the points that you brought up was on IP. And so, you know, I think there has been some, I don't know about, I don't know if concern is the right word, but just thoughts in general on how IP should be treated when it comes to UGC, right? So yep. for example, you know, in Roblox, there's like, you know, Roblox games that are using, you know, for example, Marvel IP or whatever, you know, a lot of these aren't like officially licensed uh, use cases. How should creators think about using those third-party IPs and how do, you, how do you think it's going to evolve? Do you think creators are ultimately at some point going to have to actually work with these large IP owners? Yeah, because obviously you could see how that could be a huge hindrance to creators. So how do you think this all plays out? I think it starts with the IP owner and the studio when it comes to modding. You know, some studios are extremely sensitive mm -hmm. to putting other people's IP in their game. Some people, some studios don't really care. So from, from that perspective, this is where it starts. For us as a tools and services company, we need to make sure that the studios we work with, we understand how they're thinking about UGC. Mm -hmm. what the level of flexibility is for them, and then uh, moderate the content that we receive based on their view of the world. And then going to IPs, you know, let's think about cars, for example. We've recently had a few examples that are 
sort of in the IP realm in <laughs> one of the games that we support that has cars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some car brands are very sensitive to people kind of sort of creating or replicating their models and putting it in, in a game. Some some don't care. Some consider it like a marketing opportunity for a bunch of gamers to either use or even pay money for a digital car that obviously didn't cost them. You know, for them, it's free marketing. So again, going back to that, it, it it's super kind of diverse between different IP holders. The answer is, from our perspective as a platform, we always need to use our judgment. And if there's, you know, if there's doubt, there's no doubt. Like if there's doubt, we've just not approved the content. But if we think that this is legitimate and both sides are going to be happy, we will approve it. Mm -hmm. But that's how we operate. Do you think that these IP holders should be more willing to embrace the, the UGC community, right? Because one could definitely make the argument that, you know, look, if I put your brand into Roblox, you know, one, it doesn't really cost you the effort to actually do it yourself. And two, you know, obviously you're getting a lot more impressions, you know, creating a lot more fans, et cetera. So, so I think the the answer is probably I, I would I would definitely want them to be more open, but I think in order to do that, there's more work to be done on mm -hmm. making it safe. Because I mean, let's think about someone using someone else's IP, yeah. but in a bad way. Mm -hmm. You know, may not. I mean, from the one hand, maybe there's no bad ad advertising or marketing, but sometimes there is, sure, especially yeah. when you really really care about your brand. So unless there's a very clear guidelines on how to use the IP. I think, you know, in a world that it's safe and there are very clear guidelines on how to use the IP <laughs> and someone uses the IP and you get free marketing and maybe some royalties, that's amazing. Like this yeah. is definitely a feature that I would, I would want to see happening. But for that to happen, IP owners need to really feel safe yeah. with both the game studio and trust the game studio and also the company providing that service, us, for example, or someone else. To actually cure the content. I mean, I don't know, but you know, some UGC platforms out there, their approach is if you look at their terms of service on the big, big, big PC platforms, you know, mm -hmm. they're basically saying, well, every UGC thing, this is the studio's responsibility. We're not curating any content. The community can, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, write yeah. comments, all those things, but we're doing zero curation. Mm -hmm. That's a huge IP risk. Yeah. Our approach is a bit different. We're like curating every piece of content mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that eventually there is a future in which IP owners feel safe when folks are using their IP. By the way, we, we are coming up with a really, really cool IP in a couple of months for ARC Survival Ascended. So, you know, that would be an example to proper usage. Awesome. One of the sort of consequences, right, of moderating the uses of IP on your platform, right, obviously is just like the cost in terms of resources, right? Both financial resources, and then just like time. You know, I think if you look at the large like social networks, for example, you know, they have a lot of like tools that do yep. it uh, automated, you know, but then also mm -hmm. human cura curation. And even with all of this, you know, some stuff falls through the cracks, right? Like we saw, you know, Mark Zuckerberg recently, you know, yep. commenting on this, you know, obviously this is an issue that's been around forever and it's going to continue to be a thing. How do you guys think about this, this curation, right? Because obviously you guys have a large platform with many, many pieces of UGC. And so how do you think about it? So I think I think our problem, at least right now, is of a different magnitude. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is through automation tools. We use a bunch of Gen AI tools that we've mm -hmm. developed to provide us alerts for if a human needs to look at something. And we build a lot of heuristics around trust with creators. For example, if you're 
a creator that has, you know, millions and millions and ten, tens of millions of downloads. And, you know, this is what you do for a living. And uh, you just submitted an update to your mod. And we see the Delta diff. We see that it's not material. We see that mm -hmm. you've not updated images or description, you know, that would probably qualify for an automatic update mm -hmm. that would just get pushed to players. However, if you're a new creator and you have five downloads, we would definitely manually look at what you mm -hmm. just did. So there's this mix of automation tools with heuristics, and this is what allows us to have a team of, you know, sub 10 people who are doing it. And, you know, for us, uh, that's not a problem right now. You mentioned AI, you know, given it's one of the hottest things out there right now, obviously I have to ask some, some questions. So <laughs> how is Gen AI impacting you guys as a company and two, how do you think it's going to impact the UGC landscape in general? You know, I think folks could argue some of these tools could replace creators. And, you know, I think that's one of the big concerns amongst like smaller creators. And I think another argument has been that these tools are going to be used by creators and actually, you know, make them basically more effective. Yeah. So just curious to hear your thoughts. So uh, we currently use Gen.ai for ad hoc missions in writing content, in doing graphic design, in even doing songs for videos we do on social media. Mm -hmm. We recently did something cool with Gen AI for Pal World. We're just about to introduce a feature that's going to make discovery images way more interesting compared to how they are today because it would mm -hmm. use the mod description as the prompt to mm -hmm. image, which we hope would generate more downloads for the creators. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we also use that for, I guess, uh, security in various ways, but this is kind of the ad hoc services that we're using Gen AI for. Obviously the dream is prompt to mod or prompt to map yeah. or, you know, prompt to whatever and their game. I think we're still quite far mm -hmm. from that part. I was at a conference some time ago and Sam Elkman was on stage and he talked about where he thinks Gen AI is going to go. And, you know, when it comes to things like proper video experience from prompt mm -hmm. you know he said that there's there's a good amount of years before mm -hmm. we're, we're going to see that my conclusion is for you know digital 3d worlds yeah it's gonna be gonna be a while yeah so yeah but you know for us it's our job to keep our eyes and ears open and see if we can bring tools that are going to make it easier to create to creators we, we definitely need to be at the sort of at the front of all these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the most sort of optimistic or visionary folks think that Gen AI is going to change everything, you know, in the world, yeah. but right, definitely within in gaming. And then there are people who are more skeptical, sort of where do you fall on that sort of spectrum? Like how impactful do you think these tools are going to be overall? You know, I think they're probably going to reduce production costs, but production costs would still exist. You know, there, there are people who write prompts and there are people who write prompts, who engineer mm -hmm. prompts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know how often you use GPT or any of the other tools or mm -hmm. how much of experience you have in writing prompts. And Relatively little. I would say there is like a, an exponential gap in output between mm -hmm. a person that has a lot of experience in writing prompts to, you know, a prompt could be a full like page, yeah. right, with mm -hmm. say... 30 or 35 lines that are interactive, by the way, where you say, you're a marketing manager mm. at a gaming startup. Okay, that's like a context. Mission, you need to write a script for blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Description, it needs to look and feel like that, you know, so 
there, there are a lot of differences. You know, another person could just write a script and just tell ChatGPT to say, make it better, mm-hmm. you know, and the results are probably going to be really, really different. And so I, I think to your question, it would definitely reduce cost, but it's another tool. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> uh, it still does not replace, I think, human creativity almost by definition because it's based on, you know, in things that have already been created. It doesn't mean that it cannot create quality. It definitely can create quality. But I think, you know, it's 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 just a tool, a really important one. One of the consequences of the UGC space just exploding over the last several years, you know, and again, Roblox just becoming as large as it is, is that a lot yeah. of investor attention and investor dollars, frankly, have gone into this space. You know, I think a couple of years ago, there were a lot more folks trying to raise within the the gaming space for for UGC gaming companies, but it still is definitely a large space, yeah. And you guys have raised quite a bit of funding, you know, reportedly north of $150 million. So, you know, congrats on that. But what has your fundraising journey been like? It's been really difficult, and then it was a little bit easier at the beginning. It was very difficult for us to raise money. Nobody really understood what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I also think I've done a pretty poor job explaining what <laughs> we're doing. And so we, for about three times, came to the dead end of no more money and, oh mm-hmm. my God, what are we going to do? And, you know, some sort of last resort kept us running. Mm-hmm. I think the the point in which it became easier for us to raise money is after we had traction in both I mean, users and eyeballs, but most importantly, monetization. At that point, it became easier. And I'm obviously stating the obvious. Yeah. But I think in industries in which monetization has not been proven, it's extremely difficult to raise significant mm-hmm. funds because for a VC trying to guesstimate TAM based on um, an entrepreneur that just thinks that TAM is big, mm-hmm. that's tricky. Yeah. And especially if a couple of companies have tried to do maybe things that are similar and maybe failed, you know, that's difficult. And, you know, I... Uh, um, I was very frustrated as an entrepreneur back mm-hmm. then, you know, speaking with a uh, dozen of, of investors, uh, maybe close to probably more than a hundred, but I, I definitely understand why we received all of the no's we received early on, but then with validation it just became easier. You know, I think one of the challenges that some UGC games platforms faced over the last several years was starting up is really hard, right? You yep. need content to get users, but you need users to get content, right? So that's obviously a very tough challenge. For folks who are interested in entering the space, and you know, obviously what you guys do is a little bit different from what I described, right? But for folks trying to enter this space, uh, do you have any advice either on the fundraising side or the, on the actual like getting started side? I think pack for a long journey would be my first <laughs> advice because the order of magnitude of the problems you're going to need to solve as a UGC platform is greater than if you're building an app. Mm. Building an app is hard and getting traction for building an app, you know, that's extremely hard. Building an engine for other people to build an app, which is hard and then launch it, succeed so that others would come is really hard and it takes time. And I think mm-hmm. for a very good reason, I think it took Roblox something like 12 or 13 years mm-hmm. before they sort of start exploding. And that's in that sense, you know, for us, it's been a few years as well before we start gaining any traction. And I feel like with platforms, the problem is that you, the MV, the definition of MVP is extremely broad yeah. because you need to develop the engine, which is super hard. Mm-hmm. But then you also 
need to develop monetization on the engines for third parties and some sort of a developer console for them to get their analytics and stats. Mm-hmm. And you cannot really do everything like on a third party. It sort of needs to be, uh, it needs to work. And if like us, you're in games and you're also kind of dependent on the integration of other games, then you need to build trust with these other games so that they would not send an email to stuff, you know, doing mods for their games yeah. or something like that. So there's been uh, quite a few, you know, challenges we had to solve to become relevant. So I think, you know, the first advice would be pack for a long journey. I think the second one, you need to have a very good, clear understanding on what your killer app is going to be. Because if it's an engine, it's extremely challenging, I think, before traction to convince anyone to come to your platform, mm-hmm. let go of 30% of their upside. However, as we said, if you're a new platform and you have a shitload of discovery, then people will naturally gravitate towards building on your platform. Mm-hmm. So I think a really good understanding of what your killer app is is obviously extremely important. Maybe the third point, I feel like I'm just a, a bunch of obvious things, but the third <laughs> point is very, very clear differentiation. And you know, we've we've seen platforms pop up after Roblox and and their success and and you know, some said, hey, we're gonna do kind of like Roblox, but yeah. we have a different take and you know that's what it's going to provide. You know, this has to be a huge advantage mm-hmm. for people to say, sure, I'm putting all my eggs in your basket right. and you know, let's do this, particularly if you don't have any traction. So mm-hmm. I would say long journey, killer app, super, super clear differentiation, you know, in a lot of patients. I think also like culturally, you you need to really have like a servant mindset if you're building a platform for creators. Mm-hmm. You need to put creators first with everything you do and with your culture. And how are you building it? You know, one of our core values, the first one is support main. And like when I play league, I play support usually. But I think uh, that's just a happy coincidence. I think mm-hmm. really as a platform, you need to sort of think about how you're going to be that support player. I don't know if you play league and if, if you play support, have you ever played support? I play Overwatch actually, and I have always played Overwatch. support since like Overwatch 1. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So I'm not too big into Overwatch, but mm-hmm. it, you know, with, with League, what I love about support is just your your role is extremely strategic in the map. Mm-hmm. It's, it's less mechanic. It could be a mechanic, but it's more sort of strategic. You yeah. initiate moves oftentimes, you, but you're there to take the damage mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And oftentimes you're the first one to die. And this is sort of how it needs to be, I think, when you're mm-hmm. building a platform. Let the creators live. That's great. I want to come back to, you know, obviously you guys have had a tremendous impact on creators, but first, you know, we've mentioned a few of the partners that you guys work with, right? And as you mentioned before, you know, modding in the earlier days was sort of seen as this like, you know, dark part of gaming, you know, not really embraced by the first party companies, but that has completely shifted in recent years. So what has that evolution been like? And how did you guys actually go about partnering with, you know, some of the largest IP owners in gaming? So I think this evolution is still happening. And I agree with you. It started with UGC being looked at as cheats or, Mm -hmm. you know, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But I think if we sort of split it into phases, there was like the old days of mods that were basically either replacing files or reverse engineering how the game works and then, you know, playing out with some of the things in the game, obviously Mm -hmm. doing cheats. And this is kind of Gen 1, I think, for UGC. Gen 2 started with editors. You know, we talked about Warcraft 3. That's a great example, Mm -hmm. you know, for a game studio saying, hey, we're actually going to endorse UGC and we're going to provide some sort of a tool for people to create stuff. That's probably Gen 2. Mm -hmm. And then Gen 3 is 
platforms like Roblox or platforms sort of like what we provide, which is not only kind of the engine and the tools, but also a way to monetize it in a way that's, you know, aligned and legitimate. I think for us, the way we went about legitimizing UGC is through you know, speaking, speaking with a lot of game studios and building trust over the years that everything that's being built on Overwolf is legitimate. It's not a cheat. Mm-hmm. We would never do anything. We would never allow anything that would hurt the competitive integrity of the game because we're gamers ourselves right. and because we're building this for the long term. And if it's a mod, we, we would make sure that it's safe, that it doesn't have a virus, but also that the content is aligned with how the game studio sees things. And it's very difficult sometimes for the studios themselves to have all these processes and teams in-house. And so I think for a lot of folks, it's comfortable that we're providing this as a third-party company so that they can focus on building game. So I think you know it's been a, an ongoing process, which I think we're still working on mm-hmm. and 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 you know building trust is through continuous delivery on on the promise and on safety who's actually responsible on the safety side right like let's say that there is some sort of mod listed on your platform yeah i'm assuming there aren't many if any <laughs> but you know if that does happen right there's a bad actor wants to spread their you know their virus or whatever through a mod how do you guys handle that and who actually is responsible is it you guys as the platform that takes that responsibility yeah, we're responsible and we would use any legal mean mm-hmm. uh, necessary to hunt that person down and um, bring to justice or her. <laughs> That's a really uh, interesting point. You know, I, in recent years, not even recent years, recent months even, you know, there have been lawsuits, right? Or actually, I think folks in some cases facing criminal charges for yep. modding these games and and ruining, you know, the experience for for many, many people. What do you think about this? You know, I think obviously in an ideal world, this wouldn't happen, right? In an ideal world, you know, you wouldn't want to just like ruin other people's fun at, at your game, but obviously there are people who do. <laughs> and yep. I'm sure in some or many of these cases, you know, a person who's like cheating in a game thinks that in no way are they going to, you know, face financial consequences or potentially jail time. So so how, how do you think about yeah. that? Is that just like the natural consequence and what needs um, to be done to protect your game? So I, I think there's a huge difference between cheating in a game, which is extremely annoying, mm-hmm. and you know the, the result should be a ban, but probably not going to jail, <laughs> to using a platform to distribute a malware that steals your, I don't know, credit card okay. information, your mm-hmm. cookies, and then they gotta get into your bank, whatever. Yeah. All sorts of things that people do, and for that, I think they do need to go to jail. Mm-hmm. That's pure theft, or that's crime. And with UGC platforms, it's more approachable to do these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So this is why we're extremely sensitive to the integrity of the content. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we cannot afford to not take responsibility. That's why it's our responsibility. And this is why we would do everything in our means to hunt those people down. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I I like that language, hunting them down. (laughs) Make sure that that people are appropriately scared. Going back to a lighter topic, you know, on... Creators, obviously, one of the biggest impacts that you guys as a company have had is just allowing creators to get paid. This is another topic I've talked about on some past podcast episodes as well. You know, it's great that creators can get paid, but the reality is a large percentage of the economics accrue to the large creators, right? This isn't just a thing in gaming, right? So, you know, one, what are some of the ways that you guys do help small creators get paid? 
And as this landscape evolves, do you think that the economics are going to continue to disproportionately accrue to the largest creators? Or do you think it's going to be easier for smaller creators to get paid as well? I think we help smaller creators in two ways. The first one is with funding. Sometimes if we would find someone who's talented and really wants to build, but they're currently small in scale and they cannot afford to do this full time, we would potentially fund them and kind of bridge that gap between where they are now to where they could be, should they be successful. The second part is discovery. So whenever we see content that's high quality, we would help with content discovery and recommendation. And if people like it, they would use it. For a platform like ours, where there's a direct correlation between the quality to usage to then uh, monetization, it's always going to be this 80-20 split or maybe you know 95-5 split between having tens of thousands of creators who are making very little amounts because this is just reality. It's the same thing on YouTube and it's mm -hmm. the same thing on TikTok or Instagram. It's the same thing because the fact is that if you were able to create an experience that a lot of folks like, you know, you're going to benefit from it. I mean, we've seen Lethal Company, right? That's another really interesting case study of a single developer that has developed, I think, maybe close to 20 games before a lethal company started on Roblox, right? And so that that is an amazing example to someone who took all of these learning opportunities to build something better and better and better until lethal company came along and, you know, he's now in a different place in his life. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, you guys have definitely helped creators get paid a lot. You know, reportedly, you guys have paid out more than $200 million to creators in 2023, which obviously is mm -hmm. amazing. And you guys have talked a lot about how you guys have this like billion dollar goal that you've described as a yep. North Star as one of the things, you know, driving your company forward, which I think is great. You know, I think Roblox and some of the other large platforms also talk a lot about how they help creators get paid, you know, but I have to ask you a devil's advocate question, right? Sure. So, you know, even as Roblox has scaled tremendously and paid out their creators a ton of money, you know, looking at it simply from the point of like a an investor, like a public markets investor, you know, obviously that has impacts on things like, you know, the margins and profitability and those sorts of things. So as you are building a larger and larger business, how are you thinking about one, continuing to make sure creators get paid their fair share, but also the impact on your business and how to build a profitable and successful business longer term? So so I think if, if you really want to change the world, you need to have very big, ambitious goals and think long term. And while your gross margin is an interesting factor in making sure you can pay the bills, what's going to drive change is focusing on this single KPI that's going to drive that change. Mm -hmm. And this is how much creators are going to earn. You know, we, we still have our business model, which is RevShare, and we try to sort of stay consistent with it to play fair and not give discounts to, you know, this creator because we feel like they're nice people or they're, you know, just need to play fair across everybody and, and also pay the bills. But I think it's really important to sort of unify our entire team about a single KPI that means almost everything because it's not just getting creators to pay so that they can iterate and improve quality. Mm -hmm. If if someone paid, it means that there was quality or if yeah. someone monetized with ads, it means that there was engagement. Otherwise, they would make zero. If there's engagement, there's quality, there's retention, there's all of the, there's product market fit, there's all of the elements that are in the heart of what we're trying to achieve. So 
yeah, I think it doesn't matter, at least the way I'm thinking about this, whether you're a private or public company, having KPI that talks about the essence of the platform and thinking about our core customer first is what's going to help us change the world and build a new profession. And I think for both internal or external investors, that should be the single thing that is interesting for them. And you guys also have a fund that invests in either creators or other sort of folks in the space. Right. How does that tie into your your goal and your business? For us, the fund is a way to show our partners that we're willing to take some of the execution risk mm -hmm. of, you know, on us. Because mm -hmm. like, let's say you're a game studio and you now need to build a creation kit, for example, for mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, map it or whatever. You know, that that's an expense. And if, if we can come as Overwolf and say, hey, you know, we're going to fund a piece of that or the whole thing, depending on scope, mm -hmm. then we're kind of putting our money where our mouth is and not just the tools and services that we built. Mm -hmm. And it makes it easier. You know, the fact that we have skin in the game, the fact that we have the ability to help not only technologically, but also through funding just helps us get more traction, you know, on the business you know, convince more people that this is an investment worth doing mm -hmm. and build and prove the case that we were meant to prove. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to shift gears and, you know, sort of as a concluding question, you know, obviously you've been at this for a long, long time. And in many ways, you know, you've helped shape this sort of creator and modding and UGC space. But, you know, obviously you're still working very, very hard. And so I'm sure there's still more that you want to accomplish. So going forward, what do you want to accomplish, you know, both personally and professionally? And how do you want to ultimately impact your space going forward? What we're building has, has no expiration date and has no clear, finite end goal. For me, I want to keep on doing this until I, this is what I want to do. I want to keep on doing this. And not that I want to retire, but mm -hmm. I want to keep on doing this until I retire mm -hmm. because I feel like what we're doing right now with the team is so impactful and it's mm -hmm. impactful in so many people. And I really feel very fortunate to work at a company that is building a new profession. And, you know, it, the greatest feeling is to wake up in the morning for great feedback from a creator saying, mm -hmm you guys really helped me with that or wow you really changed my life and allowed me to do it. and we have received those and we're receiving those every once in a while mm -hmm. and and it's just it's the greatest feeling in the world and this is what i want to keep on doing and i know you know we have a 10-year target for you mentioned that like a billion dollars for mm -hmm. for creators you know if we reach it we probably want to do more mm -hmm. or you know think about how else we can expand in this ecosystem that we've built so for the future i just want us to continue building this just like you know the folks in epic games are continuously building unreal mm -hmm. better quality more opportunities more experiences more delight for their customers that's what we're going to continue building so i guess this is where i want to see myself in in, in the future awesome well you know one of the best parts about this space is that you guys get to just help out so many people you know and to like literally yeah. create jobs and help people you know sort of live out their dreams. So I'll definitely be rooting for you going forward. But yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for being a great guest. I thought this was a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.